0: Rift ripped White Snake US Tour 2011. Trip Total Media Amphitheater August 16th with special guest Mr. Vig. Tickets on sale now at all Ticketmaster outlets ticketmaster.com or by calling 1-800-745-3000. The new album, Forevermore, available everywhere now. For more, see Whitesnake.com. Produced by Drusky Entertainment and Pittsburgh Concert Group.
1: What's up, everybody? This is Sully Erna, and you are tuned into to Iron City Rock. Hi, this
2: is Carmine Apice, and, and you're listening to Iron City Rock. All right,
3: Pittsburgh! You are the best! You got the best!
4: Hello and welcome to episode 108 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John. The Iron City Rocks podcast is a podcast devoted to promoting Pittsburgh's rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues music scene. Episode 108, we had the distinct honor of talking to the voice of Godsmack. Sully Erna is going to be our special guest here today. Sully is going to be coming to town not once but twice in the next few months. He's coming on June 5th to play the Carnegie Library Music Hall. Uh, Going to be doing the uh, music from his album Avalon, which we will discuss in detail coming up in the interview. Also then coming back as part of the Rockstar Energy Drink Mayhem Festival on the 29th to Burgerstown to play the first Niagara Pavilion. So we figured with two appearances in the next uh, several months, uh, it would be a great time to talk to Sully. Uh, quite an honor to talk to a musician of that stature. So I hope you enjoy the interview. And if that wasn't enough, we talked to drummer Carmine a piece. Carmine, uh, as many of you uh, may not recognize the name, but just to give you an idea on his background, he played with Vanilla Fudge. He played with Blue Murder of the 80s. He played with a band called King Cobra, and he also played with Rod Stewart and Jeff Beck. Uh, He was a co-writer on, I believe, Young Turks and uh, Do You Think I'm Sexy from Rod Stewart. So here's a guy with a pretty long and pretty impressive resume. Drummers out there, I'm certain recognize the name. He is the brother of Vinny Apice. Uh, Vinny is the drummer of Heaven and Hell. Uh, just to explain, and we got into this discussion a little bit off mic, Carmine, uh, his last name and, and Vinny's last name is the same. Carmine uh, got in kind of got to fame a little earlier than Vinny did. A lot of people butchered the pronunciation of Carmine's last name, so he just decided to go with it. Uh, so he pronounces his last name a piece. Vinny came along later with, uh, primarily Black Sabbath, as many of you recall, and he went with the traditional, original pronunciation of Apice. So uh, it is Carmine Apice. Vinny Apice. We will be talking to Carmine. Uh, kind of go through a very long interview. Unfortunately, the audio was not the greatest. Uh, Carmine was uh, ducking in and out of a restaurant, and we lost a little bit of a. interview when he talked about blue murder but we do cover his career uh in pretty good detail so i hope you enjoy that interview as well and again king cobra has a new self-titled album out many of you might remember king cobra from back in the 80s so we'll get into that so without further ado we're going to play a little bit of a song from avalon which is sully Erna's uh, 2010 solo album this is a song called sinner's prayer then we'll get into the interview with sully Erna of Godsmack.
5: What well, a great pleasure. Welcome to the show from Godsmack, Sully Erna. How are you today, Sully?
1: I'm good, man. How are you guys doing?
5: Doing great. Doing great. The weather's finally getting warm in uh, the Middle Eastern states, so it's uh, it's great. Um, hey. Guys, uh, you are going to be coming to our fair city of Pittsburgh now once or twice in the next uh, couple months. You're going to be doing a solo show uh, in, I believe, it's June, and then you're going to be coming back to the Mayhem Festival, so... Uh, we're really excited to get the opportunity to talk to you and kind of pick your brain about it, especially this, your new solo record. Kind um, of just back up, up to your roots? You grew up in Massachusetts. Did you take to the guitar or the drums, I assume, because you're very accomplished as, you know, kind of multi-instrumentalist?
1: Um, well, the first, you know, instrument I've played is the drums. I've been playing the drums since I was three years old. So I have, you know, 40 years into that um oh my god that makes me sound so old that's crazy (laughs) yeah yeah you know seriously my dad's a musician and uh i found out my great uncle from sicily was a famous composer back in the early 1900s so my music bloodline goes way back and uh i've always just been a musician um you know it wasn't until my early teens uh that i started to want to be you know a rock star in a band, like that kind of thing but um music has always been a part of my life and um uh and you know guitar and piano and harmonica and things like that came to me a little bit later um you know when I was in my 20s late 20s I started well actually probably early 20s I started noodling around on some piano stuff just like electric pianos and things like that and just figuring out you know how to play the thing and everything I've done has pretty much been self-taught you know but then through some friends. you know, who are more schooled in those instruments and stuff, they would show me new chords and things like that, and then I would just start figuring out how to play songs like Dream On and whatever. And so I started building up more of a relationship with the piano and things like that, which now is one of my favorite instruments. Um, But yeah, you know, guitar and and, and anything else I play really is just kind of something I picked up, and I use like a tool in my toolbox when I write a song. You know, I'm not not a great guitar player. I'm not a great pianist. Um, I don't even consider myself a great vocalist. Uh, I just have these things that I utilize when I need them to write a song. And I I really consider myself more of like a a ranger and a composer than I I even do like, um, you know, some kind of world-class musician where the people in my solo band, I I really feel, you know, it's a whole different situation with them because, you know, my cellist is from Bulgaria. She's classically trained, as is my keyboard player. Um, You know, one of my percussionists now, Gregory, he's from uh, Ireland, um, and is versed in Celtic drumming and Brazilian drumming and all different kinds of styles. So, you know, with the exception of drums, um, everything else was just kind of self-taught for me. Um, okay. So, yeah, it's you know, it's just one of those things. Being a musician, you know, I love playing music, so it's good for me to kind of broaden my horizons. Yeah, absolutely. Now,
5: you're, um, you know, I think Mac has always had a bit of a, a sort of a tribal part of it with Voodoo and things like that, but especially with Avalon, you've got a lot of different kind of world cultures coming together. How did, how did that kind of creep into your style and your
1: writing? Well, I I think it was when back in 93, when I was introduced to the band dead can dance through, uh, uh an old international, um, rep that I had when I was with a band called Stripmind. Um, it was kind of like a punk metal band. We were with Warner brothers and, uh, and uh, the, the lady who was in charge of International there, she was playing this Dead Can Dance record one day when I walked through the offices and I heard it. And as I passed her door, I kind of stopped and backed up and looked in, and her name was Katrina. And, um, and I asked her, I said, what is that playing? And she said, oh, it's this band, Dead Can Dance. This is their new album coming out. You know, they've been out for a little while, but they kind of have morphed into this new sound thing, and it was a record called Into the Labyrinth and um yeah. and there was a song called Yulunga playing and uh and ever since that song i i was hooked on them like i it just really changed my whole perception of music in a sense because it was so pure and organic and and spiritual and all hand drumming and this beautiful girl named Lisa Gerard singing and um, who a lot of people probably even know and don't know they know because she's in so many movie scores she does so many scores she did the score for Gladiator she's 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 in like just tons of movies and You know, they may not know who she is by name, but when you hear her voice, you go, oh, of course, you know, you recognize it immediately. So for me, that band really changed, you know, me musically in a lot of ways. And from there, I really became, you know, a lot more in tune with like hand drumming and more earthly kind of rhythms and and percussiveness. And I started writing songs like Voodoo and Serenity and... uh, and songs like that came about. And so it really tapped into like a more spiritual side of me musically. And then from there, you know, obviously over the years, just being a musician, I would write different pieces of music that I just knew weren't going to quite be right for God smack, even in an acoustic fashion. So I would um, just kind of tuck them to the side. And when the opportunity was right, you know, I put together some of these pieces. I brought in these different musicians and we started to... Kind of very organically create this new project, and uh, and that's where we're at right now. And you know, and the record is just based off of all hand drumming. And when you hear a flute, it's a flute. When you hear a cello, it's a cello. It's not synthetic instruments. So um, it's probably what I'm the most proud of in this project is that everything is very true to what the sound is.
5: Yeah, very organic. Now, did you was this kind of your First foray into in kind of doing this sort of arranging. I know you, you produced the album as well, but I mean, was that particularly challenging to do this, some of these arrangements for some instruments you may not know how to play?
1: Well, no, not really. I mean, there was definitely challenging moments because you know I was working with a group of people that were so far ta- so far beyond talented. Than what, I mean, my, like I said, I feel my strength has been in producing and arrangements and. Uh, you know, I am a good player. I just don't, I'm not like this world-class, classically trained musician, you know, so sure. I, I'm more of a street musician, you know, everything I learn, I learn my on my own. But, you know, um, I've always produced even the Godsmack records and, and wrote, you know, majority of that music and stuff like that. So that's something over the years I've just grown to get a little bit better and better at, or at least I should say comes more naturally to me. Um, mm-hmm. But working with this group of people, it was challenging because, um, but it was challenging in a very inspiring way, not in a difficult way. It was just, um, it was very exciting to be around new instruments and new types of musicians and seeing their influences and what they brought into the table and then kind of hearing those sounds and those scales and those melodies and kind of weaving them into what we were doing um, was, was a really, really wonderful experience for me.
5: Yeah, you've got to be kind of like a kid in a candy store with having all these different, you know, tools on your arsenal to write with. Um, were you um, surprised at the success the has enjoyed? I mean, did you?
1: Um, yeah, so far, I mean, you know, I'm hoping it gets to much bigger places because I really feel at the end of the day when I listen back to this record now that it's, it's such... I hope, I'm not speaking too prematurely, but there's some pieces on this record that really do feel timeless to me, and I hope it goes to that place, I hope it just has longevity, and I hope the masses are able to hear this, I hope it spreads like a virus, Um, because I really am super proud of this record, but more importantly, I just think the music speaks for itself. And um, and I think everybody who's come in contact with it really appreciates it and enjoys it, and so it's happening, you know, again very organically, even through you know the 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 public, and so um, I I really hope it continues to spread that way because we are putting together this great live show that we're going to launch on May 13th in Concord, New Hampshire, um, and you know we we are going to continue to to kind of um, get out there and uh, and perform. This new Avalon show, and uh, and you know, hopefully for, you know from there it'll it'll kind of even grab more legs of its own and take off.
5: Yeah. Now, are you taking kind of the the whole show on the road as far as instrumentalists and and like Lisa, for example, on vocals? Will she be joining you guys?
1: Everybody. It's an eight-piece ensemble in total. Um, Lisa will be there. She's been a key element to this to this uh, project. You know, sounding the way it does, she's an amazing singer, four octave range, just crazy good at what she does and um and yeah the all the originals that played on this record will be there um and so and along with that you know we are putting together this really cool lighting package and a really beautiful video production and i want to really take people on a journey on a musical journey and have them experience what a gift music really is to all of us and this isn't about you know pyro and jumping off drum rises and all that stuff this is really about Coming into a theater and watching a really beautiful performance, and taking people through this, you know, musical experience. Now, How is it? Um, is the experience as enjoyable? You hear a lot of
5: musicians that have achieved the level of success you have that get to go back into theaters, that fall in love with the experience. Is that been kind of your take on it? That it's kind of neat to get back to a smaller venue.
1: Oh yeah, it's always kind of cool to go back and be more intimate and get closer to the audience and really touch them on an emotional level. So, I don't think you can do that sometimes in big arenas and in stadiums, but you know, this isn't that thing anyways. Like even I got to tell you, you know, it's a hard it's a hard thing to say because who doesn't want it to get as big as it can get? But even if it grew to be a stadium act, which I don't see it becoming, I don't know if it would translate as well as it would in a theater. This feels more yeah. theatrical. You know, I could see this going into five, even up to 5,000-seat theaters. But I feel like beyond that, it might get lost in translation because it's a very intimate and personal kind of performance. And so I wonder, you know, even if it grew to be that big, how, how it would translate. I mean, I guess anything's possible. Look what Roger Waters did with The Wall, you know. I mean, that's... Sure. I mean, that's basically a theater production in an arena. It, it's amazing, you know, what he was able to pull off. So I guess, you know, anything's possible, and it, and it could, you know, grow to be bigger and, and translate on, on that kind of level. But right now, I'm really enjoying the baby stages, you know. I don't want the kid to grow up too quick. Um, yeah, that's so, a great analogy. And it's such an intimate yeah, it's, it's important to enjoy this part of it, too. Otherwise, you kind of miss the ride.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Now, obviously, you're going to be doing... Um, as I mentioned earlier, the Mayhem Festival with the, the rest of the boys from the band. Um, do you have plans um, to go back into the studio for a follow-up to the Oracle um, anytime soon?
1: Um, no, not right now, because you know, we, I ju- we just finished that record, and we just put it out... Um, uh, I think it was early. What a year ago? Maybe it came out April. I yeah. think I, I don't even yeah. remember. <laughs> um, and then obviously the solo record came out a few months after that. And um, you know that was a lot of writing between the solo record. That took a year of writing and recording just to get that right. And then Godsmack was like six months of that. And uh, you know. I, I, I continuously write. I sit home and I'll play my piano. I'll play an, an acoustic guitar, whatever. And I'm always tucking away ideas. But to really get focused in writing mode, that's a, it's a whole different kind of mentality you have to be in. And I, it would kind of defeat the purpose if we did all this work and didn't take time off to just enjoy the tour now. And that's kind of the reward from all the hard work that you do. So right now, the answer is no, I'm not writing. I'm just kind of enjoying you know, getting out on the road and and performing this stuff live, and you know, just kind of uh, yeah, just just enjoying that moment. I need that. You know, I need that kind of release.
5: Yeah, and and the good thing is you've got kind of the best of both worlds because you've got this intimate personal album, I and you've got you know a, a great hard rocking album like the Oracle to go out and you know do the arenas and things like that. You've got two great releases to to draw from great. Tully, thank you so much for taking the time on your schedule to do this. I appreciate it very, very much.
1: Sure, man. You have a great day. Hopefully come and uh, see you on the road somewhere and have a beer with us. All right, man. Take care. All right. Bye.
0: He has returned. Danzig. The Death Red Samaoth Tour. (laughs) Leave the poser rock behind. Come see the real deal. There is only one dancing. The Death Red Sabe Tour. With special guests, Devil Driver and Two Cents. Friday, May 20th, 7 p.m. at Stage A.E. Tickets go on sale Friday, March 5th at 10 a.m. At all Ticketmaster locations, charge by phone at 800-745-3000. Or online at Ticketmaster.com. For more information, visit PromoWestLive.com. The new album, Death Red Sabeoth, out now. The unrivaled master of dark rock. Danzig, the Death Red Sabeoth Tour. Brought to you by Promo West North Shore and Opus One. Hails Iron City Rocks listeners. I'm Dario Psycho and I am co-hosting two of the shows here on Focus on Metal Network. I'd like to invite you to join us. We have shows available every week and they range from classic metal shows to the most extreme ones and another show that is somewhere in between. If you're interested in discovering new music, perhaps some forgotten classics, learn something about extreme or modern metal, If you want to catch up on the news, some fun stuff, a lot of engaging conversations, and killer interviews, join us. You can find us at FocusOnMetal.net. Thanks so much. Now back to John. Our story begins in a little place we like to call paradise. Paradise. The legacy continues. Meatloaf, the Hang Cool Tour. July 28th at Triptotal Media Amphitheater. experience his historic past and new adventures from his latest album hang cool teddy bear available now tickets on sale at all ticket masters ticketmaster.com or by phone
4: all right a giant thank you goes out to sully arna for joining us on the show Uh, hope you get a chance to check out again he'll be at uh, the carnegie music hall in june and out at first niagara in july so no excuse if you're a fan of uh, godsmack or sully uh, to get a chance to see that, and from talking to him, I have to. My curiosity is piqued on what the show at uh, the Carnegie is going to be like. Uh, if you've had a chance to listen to Avalon, I think you know what I mean. It's very atmospheric, and I think it could be a really, really cool evening. And his explanation of the lights and things make it sound uh, like it could be a really uh, a great show. So, without further ado, we're going to get into an interview with Carmine apiece. again. Carmine, I uh, got to start vanilla fudge. Uh Rod Stewart, Jeff Beck, uh went on to play with King Cobra, Blue Murder, uh, does a uh show kind of uh in the vein of the show Stomp. Uh he does a show uh drum called Drum Wars with his brother uh Vinny apiece Or I'm sorry, Vinny Apice. Even I get him mixed up. So without further ado, we're gonna get into interview with Carmine Apiece. show how are you doing today carmine
3: i'm
2: okay how are you doing
4: i am doing great you're uh, joining us from new york city right now which uh kind of leads me to a question you you were born in brooklyn correct
2: i grew up in brooklyn i was actually born in staten island but okay. i was only there for the day <laughs> i went to brooklyn straight away
4: now you have my
2: father was in the coast Guard. i was born in the major hospital in staten island
4: okay now, you have um, what is widely kind of considered to be the premier hard rock drumming style. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how that style developed and, and what your influences were?
2: Well, my influences were Gene Cooper and Buddy Rich.
3: Uh, yeah, they
2: were like uh, probably the two biggest influences in my career. And, uh, Buddy was just a vicious, vicious player. Gene Cooper was a really great player. He was a guy he brought drums out front. He mm-hmm. brought drums to the public side. He was a showman and all that. So I, I copped a little bit uh, for both of those guys.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And then, you know, when I started playing with a school called the Pigeons, which turned into even all a fudge, I, uh, I learned that they, they were so loud and the music was so dramatic that I had to use more than just my hands and my, my wrist to play. I had to start using my body Yes. Uh, to back up the patterns and, and uh, because it was again so dynamic and loud. So you know loud was part of the uh, was part of my vocabulary then and dynamics was another part of the vocabulary with, with that band. So in order to play louder I turned my sticks over. Okay. And I changed my, my grip from master to you know, traditional grip to match grip on both hands, which means, you know, just holding it <laughs> regular as you would grab a stick. Right. Uh, traditional grip is the way they played in the marching band and all that. And for me, that's how I, I grew up playing. Okay. So, um, when I was kind of playing, you know, with Vanilla Fudge and Pigeons, it was just so loud that I had to really put in a lot of heavy movement. And now I'm using my arms and my legs instead of. Keeping my foot down with the heel down, I was lifting my whole leg up to hit okay. the pedal. And eventually I ended up getting big drums and and playing really powerful with a lot of body movement, a lot of sticks very high in the air coming down very heavy. And this was my style. And I didn't know that this was going to develop into the sort of the template of what a rock, heavy rock drummer was going to be.
3: Yeah. You know,
2: yeah you, I was just doing out of stuff out of necessity, you know?
4: Yeah. You, and you, that's
2: what it ended up being. And, you know, I created something without knowing
4: it. Yeah, it really be, became a very, you know, physical. You've got to have, obviously, very good cardiac conditioning to, to be able to do that style of drumming. Right.
2: And then, and then I added the showmanship to it. And I, yeah. You know, really theme on it, you know?
4: Yeah, which was good. Now, you went from Vanilla Fudge, obviously, to, to a band that maybe doesn't get the... the credit, it deserves Cactus. Can you just briefly describe what what led you to go from Vanilla Fudge to Cactus?
2: Well, at the time, <clears throat> over there in 1968, a lot of heavy heavy uh, rock bands, blues rock bands were coming out. You know, Jeff Beck came out, Jeff Beck, Group, and Rod Stewart came in, and there was you know, just like the James Band. And there's a lot of bands like that coming out and, you know, that were more guitar-oriented, not mm. keyboard-oriented. You know, we I wasn't I wasn't really you know, I was like tired of playing the keyboard arrangements and everything was, you know, was the same every night even though even though we had room to, to improvise within the arrangements, it was still the same arrangement every night. But I me and Tim wanted to play more hard rock and initially captors was gonna be me, Jeff Peck, Rod Stewart and Tim Bogan. And Rod mm-hmm. didn't want to work with Jeff. Jeff got in the car wrecked and put him back about 18 months. Mm-hmm. And we had broken vanilla for Jeff at the time. We said, no, we got to continue. So we got two other men that are going
4: Okay. And then obviously you went on to play with Jeff Beck um, and subsequently Rod and with, with Stewart. Him
2: as well, with as uh-huh. mm-hmm. and Rod So I ended up playing with Jeff and Rod anyway. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so you, 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 you kind of
4: accomplished it all with with that. I mean, that's if you look back at me through the the history of classic rock. I mean, that's some heavy heavy hitters there. And the one thing that I think kind of made your career unique is that you made the transition to the '80s probably a lot better than a lot of other musicians from call it the late '60s early '70s era. Um, you right. went on to you did the you just did the tour for Ozzy Osbourne's Bark at the Moon. Is that correct? Right. Okay. Yeah,
2: and then. And it didn't last very long. <laughs> no.
4: No, unfortunately, that was kind of before Ozzy's resurgence in his career there. Um, and then King Cobra, which was a project that you kind of got rolling in the uh, mid 80s. Um, and that, you know, the, the beauty of that, you were very oriented towards the, time, the kind of music that was available at that time. So, um, do you want to talk a little bit of what, what led to that decision to kind of go in that direction?
2: Well, I mean, you know, I, I was playing with Ozzy and I was also going for solo records. I had already found me singing in Mark III and I was going to do a solo record while I was playing with the Ozzy Osmo group. When that, when that career was cut short by Sharon mm-hmm. and I was sort of fired from the tour, which really freaked me out. i never been fired from anything. Yeah. And, you know, soon was bad, you know. When uh, I was on the tour had yeah, Motley 2 is the opening house. And I said, you know what? The day you know, 83, 84. It was all about image. You know, mm-hmm. MTV. I mean, a well, lot of bands that couldn't play. I'm making it big because of the image, you know? Yeah. So when I said, you know, if I had to create my own band together, I'd get some guys that can play great. And i will be the opposite of Motley 2. I'll have uh, all blondes, and I'd be the black pick. <laughs> they were the opposite. they were all... Blackhead and the singer was formed, you know. That's a way so, to do it. So that's what I did. When I got fired, I said, Well, the next thing to do is, is do my own band instead of a solo project. Uh, yeah. Which I you... did, and, and it was in but I made sure that everybody in the band sang great and mm-hmm. played great. Yeah. All the comrades, that thing I was talking about, having a good image and couldn't play. So I tried to get everything, I had a great image and
4: then it's Yeah, that's impressive. Now, going um, forward now, you have got a new album out with a reunited uh, King Cobra. Um, can you just give us a little background? Obviously, uh, Mark is not doing the vocals on this album, Paul Shortino of uh, Rough Cut and Quiet Riot and Mark fame. Mark is still... not Mark
3: anymore, so yeah. <laughs> part of it right there.
2: Yeah, that, that, uh,
4: that says a little bit there, but um, yeah, do you want
2: to... Mark is now mossy, but, you know... Um... 1986, Mark III left the band because we were too heavy, mm-hmm. you know. He wanted to sing more what I call wimpy rock. I mean, mm-hmm. I got that term from Ted Nugent, you know. Yeah. And uh, Mark, Mark wanted to play more wimpy, keyboard-oriented, you know, corporate kind of rock, which is not really me, you know. I, I don't like that. I mean, we sort of went a little bit in that direction for our second King Cobra album only because the label made us do it, you know. They said, you got to do that or we're not going to do a second album. So we really had no choice. And so anyway, so he wasn't going to be in it. And then lately, in the last year, I had talked to Mark Marcy, whatever, however you want to call him, about doing some gigs and about releasing a King Cobra DVD that we recorded in Mexico. And for some reason very adamant about not releasing it, even to, you know, release it, you know, assuming. <laughs> I said, hey, dude, it's not that important, because, you know, there's really not much money in it.
4: No, not anymore.
2: And everything, you know, I, I did a catalog deal, and with the catalog deal, I gave a mixed amount of product. If you divide the, pro- you divide the product by, the, by everything, uh, it, it only came out to about $400 for the DVD, which, you know, at the... He would have made, you know, it's not about money. You know, I just said, look, dude, it's not about money. It's about getting it out there so people can buy it if they want, you know. Uh, So with that, I figured, you know, I wasn't even going to ask him to join King Culver for a reunion album. Between that and knowing that he he didn't want to play that kind of music anymore, I didn't even think about asking him. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I knew I got the the original band back together, and then uh, I had mentioned Paul shortino to uh, today because at the time when we actually came up with the idea we were at the mixing session for the group Keel who also released an album on Frontiers and uh, by them uh, mixing it I was with the guy that mixed my guitars and albums, my Travis and Peace records so he's a close friend of mine and a great great mixing guy and he said to me look you know, why don't you guys do an album, you and King Cobra I said, oh, that's an interesting idea. And then right there and then I knew Paul wasn't, I knew Mark wasn't going to do it. So I said to Dave, um, you know, we have to get somebody maybe with a name. And, and Pat was mentioning that Paul Shortino produced the vocals for Ron Keel. And I said, wow, that's a good idea. Paul Shortino is a great singer.
3: Mm-hmm. I had
2: worked with him before, and uh, we went on this crazy tour together. And it was a Christmas uh, benefit tour that ended up being a disaster. I ended up rooming with him. We sang on a bus together from Salt Lake City to Vegas, and I, that's when I realized what a great voice he had. And uh, so I said, let's just get Paul, you know. So I called Paul, and Paul was into it. So let's do it. And, you know, and quite honestly, we couldn't have done it with Mark Three the way we did this album. Mm-hmm. Because we did this album totally on the Internet.
4: Oh, okay. You
2: know? We Pro- weren't even in the same room.
4: Was this Every a Pro- time
2: we got in the same room, we do the pictures.
4: Was this a Pro Tools project?
2: Well, it's Pod Pro Tools, and let's put it this way. I did the drums analog. Okay. Okay? I did the drums analog at a studio called Hit Tracks in Vegas. Paul is in Vegas, so we use Vegas as like home base. Okay. Because it was really middle grounds of LA and Phoenix with Dave was. Me, Dave, and Paul got together in December 09 when I had a gig there, and we. Listen, we, we brought all material that we had, you know, like leftover material from different projects and this and that. And we also brought some tapes from, that we had written stuff from
3: 1984.
2: Okay. That we never used because Frontiers was adamant. We want an album that sounds similar to Ready to Strike. That's what they wanted. So we said that's no problem because me and, me and Dave were very, uh involved in the songwriting in those two projects, you know, this one and the other one. This one and um, and the old one I should say. So that's what we did. So we got together and then uh once we knew what songs we were gonna do, then Dave started the ball rolling by putting those songs down rhythm guitar wise, um, with a quick track. Okay. He also before we got to that point sent us some song ideas the quick track. I went back to Vegas. Me and Paul spent ten days listening to Dave's ideas, tearing them apart. We, you know, cut and pasting them. Now Paul's a great Pro Tools engineer, and so is Dave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and both of them are, are really good producers in their own right. So that's why Paul was so important in this project, not only as a vocalist but as an engineer. So I would go to Paul's house, and we take Dave's ideas. Sometimes we cut and paste them, we'd cut paste this to there you know, move it around. And once we got the arrangement together, we put down vocals and background vocals and lyrics that Dave might have, you know, come up with a, they might have come up with a, a melody and a, a hook line. And mm-hmm. then me and, me and Paul would finish the song and rearrange it and put it together. And then we'd send it back to Dave. And then he would actually cut like one guitar of a real good sounding guitar to, and send it back. So now we had the real good sounding guitar and we had Paul's vocals. Okay. And then I took that into the studio and put the drums down analog. Okay. Okay? On tape through an SSL board of this place, Citrass, in Vegas. And this great engineer, Tom Parham, he did a tremendous job with the drum sound. And then, once we did that, then we bounced it to Pro Tools, send it back to Dave, and Dave put the big guitar on, put a ribbon guitar on, and Johnny Rod flew in and ended up living in Vegas, he put the bass parts down in one in one one tape one day. I mean it was amazing. Mm-hmm. And they sent me the tapes while you know, through the internet while I was on the road with Michael Schenker. Okay. You know? And then so we finished. we did that. And then we sent the album to Mick, and then Mick you know, Mick finished his parts and then sent it back to Dave and then before you know it they had the whole thing done. You know, and then we needed someone to mix it. So Paul suggested this guy, Michael Voss in know, okay. uh, in German. So I said, well, you know, why Michael Voss? And he said, well, because Michael mixed and produced my solo album in Germany that did well. On the time, at the time I was on the road with, um, with Schenker, his lead singer Gary Barton also had an album being done by Michael Voss.
5: Mm-hmm. And
2: while we were on the road, Michael Schenker's uh, video, the DVD, was being mixed by Michael Voss, and Paul Shortino was doing some background vocals on the DVD. So it was almost like a family thing, you know, everything was connected to each other. So we said, okay, let's give him a shot. So we gave him the song that's not even on the album called Monsters and Heroes. I don't know if you heard about that song.
4: No, I have not.
2: That song was a song that we had for the album. Originally, it was about when you were a kid and you grow up and, you know, you're like 10, 11 years old. You're looking in your closet and you see monsters at midnight coming out of the black closet or under the bed. And then when you get older, you got all this... You know, posters on the wall, and there's your heroes. So you got monsters and heroes, you know, so mm-hmm. that's what it was about. The middle section had, you know, like uh, Jimmy gave us uh, rainbows, Janice gave her a piece of her heart, and we talked about Keith Moon, John Bonham, and Mitch Mitchell dying, you know. And then the next day, a couple of days after Ronnie Dio died, Paul said to me, you know what, I'd like to add Ronnie to that middle section. I said, great, do it. You know, and then, then the next day he said, "You know, I have a better idea. I want to write the whole song about Ronnie James Dio, make it a tribute to Ronnie." Okay. I said, "Great." So like the chorus will go monsters and heroes, and they'll go wizards, rainbows, uh, wizards, dragons, and rainbows in the dark, search for the sacred heart. The opening line is, uh, "Sing a song, singing, he's the man on the mountain ma- so on the mound, he's the man on the mound who wrote the songs we all love." That was the opening line. So we took some of Ronnie's lyrics, mixed them up with new lyrics, and made this amazing tribute. So one that was that was the first track we had done. We sent that to Michael Bost. He mixed it, sent it back to us from Germany by email. The mixes were awesome. I mean, they were really, really awesome. So we said, "Okay, dude, you've got the job." So now he was mixing the album from Germany, and so it was quite a. It took a long time. Yeah, It took about a year. You know, it took a year. We signed the deal probably in, I don't know, January or February, but we knew we were doing it. We knew we had the deal. And then we we delivered it, not quite a year. We delivered it in October, mm-hmm. November. So it's probably about, it took us about, from actual starting the songwriting, it was like February we got the, the ideas. So maybe nine or ten months, maybe 11 months to do the record.
4: Yeah, imagine um, you know the money you it saved.
2: Out much better than we ever thought
4: it was be. Sure. It out much now, how, how is, as a guy who's been doing the record business for you know the better part of 30, 40 years? How was the experience of Pro Tools to you? And you know, I I think about like when you went into the studio with Vanilla Fudge, to where you're talking about emailing tracks back and forth. How was that experience? I mean, you prefer it the old well, way, I I prefer it the it new.
2: It well, I prefer it the old way. We're, you know, the only reason why we did it this way is because there wasn't enough money to do it any other
4: way. Certainly, yeah.
2: <laughs> you know, I mean, if we had a you know budget three times what we had, then we would have flown everyone into town. We would have rehearsed, gone and do the tracks, and we would have had the whole album done within a month. Sure. You know, but by by fact that there's, you know there's no budgets anymore. Yeah. You know, no budgets like we used to have, especially.
3: And yeah. We
2: uh, you know we couldn't do it. Yeah. So we had to figure out how to do it, and this was the best way to do it. You know, we, we were lucky that we got everybody in town in my house in L.A. to do the pictures all together. That was yeah. That took a, a lot of coordinating, you
3: know?
4: Sure. Now, do you and, see uh, uh, Do you see the band going out on the road at all to do any support for the album? Well, I,
2: I don't really know, tell you the truth, because right now we did a couple of videos that were, you know, trying to get edited as soon as possible. And we're, you know, we're doing all this promotion. And quite honestly, you know, the, the money being offered for the band, there was only one gig. In um, I believe it was in August, that was that was uh, a decent offer to go on the road. It was a festival with a decent amount of money. Sure. All the other all the other ones didn't even have enough money to pay for the band and the crew to get over there. Yeah. And so and today there's no record company involved that'll pick up the. Uh, the deficit and i'm certainly not going to do it i did it in the 80s also i'm, I'm still out 200 grand from the last time you know?
4: yeah it doesn't mean i'm
2: not about to do that i mean this was this album was all done for fun you know somebody said hey why don't you guys do a record with hey, that's that's a good idea and yeah. that's really what it stemmed from going on the road only only popped up after we did such a good album yeah people were saying wow we'd like to see you guys doing this live and i said well wow, so maybe we should see where we can get together. And then we found out that there wasn't much going on. See, I I know why, because King Cobra in the old days, the manager I had at the time was involved in in the making of KISS. Mm -hmm. Now, if you remember, I don't know how old you are, but KISS in the beginning had so much press, and it took them two or three albums to catch up with the record sales to the press. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's what King Cobra was, except we've never had the record company commitment that made us catch up the sales to the press. So we always looked bigger than we were
4: yeah. You know,
2: as far as sales-wise. So that's what happened with King Cobra in the 80s. And now a lot of people know King Cobra, but a lot of people don't know the songs. They know the name. So therefore, when you go try and book it, it's very difficult for a promoter, especially a, new, a young guy that,
3: that heard yeah. the
2: name but don't know any of the songs. I mean, like you can, yeah, you can say, well, I'm going to book quite right. Oh yeah, mental health. and comes to feel the noise. You, you know the song. Yeah. The King Cobra. If I saw Iron Eagle, I never heard that song. Or Hunger, yeah. I never heard that song. Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard to book. You know. So yeah. That's, so, so we're hoping that people say, well, what are your goal with this album? i goal with this album is to sell enough records to do another album.
3: Yeah, and, and... and then
2: maybe after that album by next summer, we did another album quickly. We already have uh, drum tracks down for about 12, 13 songs. Oh, okay. So, You know, once we if we you know sell enough on this, and you know we're already working on new songs.
3: Yeah, get I... another
2: album out, and maybe next summer between these two albums, it'll sell enough albums to warrant people to go. Hey, you know, we know this new album is great. We got great reviews, and we sold. I made a few, you know, heavy metal shots and this and that, and then we can, uh, you know, maybe do
4: something next year. You know? Yeah, with the proliferation of a lot of, uh, you know, internet radio stations and satellite radio stations that do more niche oriented music, I think we'll certainly benefit. Because when you listen to the album, it sounds very classic, but I still think it sounds very contemporary. It doesn't sound like uh, you guys are trying to invent, you know, nineteen eighty six all over again. So it, <coughs> no, yeah.
3: I mean, what we
2: did was. By using this guy, Michael Voss, <laughs> I think we uh, we gave it a bit of a, a modern technology mm-hmm. thing because he was very into, like, cool sounds and and uh, <laughs> and all that. And, sure. And, you know, I was very blown away when we first got for this Monsters and Hero Track. You should go, like, to my website, mm-hmm. com, and it's a download. And I forgot to tell you. The, all the money made from that record, that song, totally, is going to Ronnie Dio's Ronnie cancer fund.
4: Okay.
2: The the more downloads we got, the more money we can send to the fund. You
4: know? Wonderful, yeah.
2: And, uh, and it's and a it, great song. And, yeah. when we, and when you hear that song, you listen to the production that the, the guy put into the mix, and it, it makes it sound really, really now. It's really cool. You know? Yeah. And that's why we... Because it sounds like the 80s, but it doesn't sound like the old 80s. Just
3: yeah. Like the new, a new, new version of the eighties.
2: Yeah, a little fresher. The label loves it. The, the label loves it because it does sound like that, and we love it. We were like, wow. We actually, you know what? When we finished this record, we we were blown away. All of us were saying man. This thing came out fantastic. Yeah. Much, much better than we ever thought it was going to come out.
4: You know? Yeah, I've had a chance to listen to. It. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And again, that album comes out May third, I believe, in the United States through yeah, Frontiers. Yeah. Frontier's record, so. Yeah, and I'm, yeah, I'm also going to be on that VH1
3: Classic uh, metal, that metal show.
5: Oh, okay.
2: We mentioned the release of that album. So hopefully, yeah, I'm hoping we'll sell some product, you know? Sure.
4: Yeah, I mean... And it, again,
2: with the way the business is now, you know, it's so bad with the free downloads. I mean, people, you know, young kids and so many people don't even know that, you know, you're supposed to buy this stuff. Yeah.
5: Yes, they actually you put know? the price. Product... No,
2: I mean, it's happening not, not only that. you know, I have a big selling drum book. Yeah. You know, I was selling ten thousand books a year, and and now you know we're down forty percent on their sales, and partly due to it, I can like get, over the weekend I found another damn one of these sinking websites where you can download my book in eighteen seconds. You know, it's ninety-five pages yeah. of drum instruction. I said no, that was really pisses me off. I said, what kind of asshole takes my book and scans every page at high resolution? ninety five times so he could down put it on the internet so somebody could download it for free. Yeah. I
3: mean
2: it's yeah. a lot of work to do to to for free. You know, yeah. Number one. And, and you know, and it screws me up. So every time I see that I have to call the, the uh, publishing company and they get their lawyers on it and they close the site down and then it'll open up again somewhere else, you know. Yeah,
4: some it's other smart. corner of the globe. It's
3: really yeah, affecting, it's, it's affecting everybody, you know, it's
4: terrible. Yeah, and once the horse is out of the barn, you kind of lose control over it. So, Carmen, I want to thank you, uh, for taking the time to come on the show. It has been an absolute honor to talk to you.
2: I just come out of peace on Iron City Rocks, and here's a track from our new King Cobra record, titled King Cobra. Keep rocking.
0: Celebrates the 30th anniversary of the release of their iconic High Infidelity album. September 18th, 7:30 at Trib Total Media Amphitheater at Station Square. All those legendary hits from High infidelity and, and more. Preserve hey, seats are on sale now at all Ticketmaster locations. Ticketmaster.com or by calling 1-800-745-3000. Presented by Drusky Entertainment and Pittsburgh Concert Group.
4: All right, a big thanks to Carmine Peace for coming on the show. And also, again, thanks, Eliana, for joining us. If you'd like to find more information about us, you can go to www.ironcityrocks.com. Welcome you to like us on Facebook at uh, facebook dot com forward slash Iron City Rocks. Twitter. Um, if you're using MySpace, well, you need some help. Uh, time to get yourself a Facebook account. But we are on MySpace. If you're uh, Old school, let's put it that way. So want to invite you as well. We're giving away a pair of tickets to see Motley Crue, Poison, and the New York Dolls at Stage A.E. I had an opportunity to witness firsthand Stage A.E. the other day, seeing uh, social distortion. And I promise you, you won't be disappointed. So you can go to ironcityrocks.com, enter to win there. We're also giving away a picket- pair of tickets to see the monkeys at uh, Stage A.E. as well. So check out the contest section of ironcityrocks.com. We thank you as always for listening, and we'll see you next time.